Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So the, the, the first thing that the Battle of Petersburg did was delay, uh, delay Phillips's continued assault on supply systems, etc., and probably saved uh, Richmond. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Bill Welsh discussing the battle at Petersburg, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Bill Welsh, and he'll be discussing the battle at Petersburg. Not that Petersburg not that war. We're talking, of course, about the Battle of Petersburg that occurred during the American Revolution, not its much more famous Civil War counterpart. Bill Welsh gives us a fabulous article this week, really breaking down the ins and outs of a battle that could sometimes be forgotten or passed over. It shouldn't be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Bill Welsh. Bill Welsh, Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be able to join you this evening. Thank you. Bill, you're a first-time guest. Tell us about your background. Well, I am a retired administrator from Montclair State University in New Jersey. I worked there for 35 years in a variety of capacities. Retired to Richmond in 2005 to be close to my girls and their families and my grandchildren. Uh, I am the founding and current president of the American Revolution Roundtable of Richmond, and along with my good friend David Ruer from South Carolina, I'm the co-founder of the Congress of American Revolution Roundtables. Uh, I got my historic start at Valley Forge in a fifth grade uh, field trip, and I have been hooked on the revolution ever since then. I My main interests are revolution in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and the, the generals of the Continental Army and, and the, the winter encampments. Um, I've served in the Marine Corps. I am a former New Jersey politician, having served in the town council and as deputy mayor of Springfield, where the historic 1780 Battle of the Revolution was fought. Um, I am also the former president of the Richmond Civil War Roundtable, as is pretty much everybody who's a member of that organization. Uh, I am happily married to Jerry for the last 53 years, two daughters, and I tell people that my main job is actually being a bad influence on my five grandchildren. So, So that's me. Bill, we all know about Benedict Arnold. Give us a little bit of a catch up to Arnold, what he's doing, what's going on leading up to this battle. Well, I, a number of years ago, I was looking for a, a potential field trip for our roundtable members. And when we were organizing the group, I had talked to Bob Davis, who was a retired Army First Sergeant and the author of the only biography of General Phillips called uh, Where a Man Can Go. And we talked about him doing the tour, but he, he was involved in some family health issues. Uh, and unfortunately, we lost Bob uh, shortly thereafter. 
he referred me to Jim Ryan, who was another uh, retired Army officer who uh, led a wonderful tour for us uh, of the Petersburg battle. And, and consequently, I became interested in the battle and started to do some research on my own, started to look around, uh, visited the site a number of times, and ultimately uh, led a number of tours down there myself. And, and that kind of sat for a while. But in Richmond, believe it or not, we celebrate Benedict Arnold's raid on Richmond every year. And this past January, I was asked to speak at St. John's Church, with great honor, where, where Patrick Henry spoke. And they asked me to speak about the Battle of Petersburg because there was an, an Arnold element there, which I did and, and had a wonderful time doing it. And I said, you know, this is a relatively forgotten battle that I suspect people in the Journal of the American Revolution would enjoy. And consequently, I took that talk and converted it uh, over to the article. So I, I have to give credit for uh, to, to Bob Davis and Jim Ryan uh, and the people at St. John's for, for coming up with this article eventually. So that, that's kind of the background on it, if you will. Okay. Well, certainly we all know that in the, in the fall of 1780, he changed sides. And by the time uh, this battle occurred, he was a, a British brigadier general. And he had uh, been sent by General Clinton, the British commander in New York, the British overall commander, to uh, raid Virginia. Virginia had been lucky in that it hadn't been the scene of, of much action subsequent to uh, a couple at the beginning of the war. And he wanted Arnold to come down here. He sent him down with 1,600 men at the end of at the end of uh, 1780, and he wanted him to, to to damage logistics. He wanted him to destroy the supply network down here. He wanted him to interdict troops and supplies that were being sent south uh, to General Green, who was fighting with Cornwallis at that point. Um, he really sent him down with, with, with three or four different uh, requirements. As I said, destroy the supply and storage bases. Now, he wanted him to develop a future base in Portsmouth for, for future ac actions. He wanted him to rally the loyalists. Um, he, he, he did all those things very well, and he raided all through the beginning of 1781 along the James River. It's interesting, though, he was, even though he was sent by Clinton, he was not necessarily well-loved or uh, highly trusted by the British. Clinton sent two of his second-in-commands, Simcoe and Dundas, with dormant commissions, which essentially would allow them to replace Arnold if there were a need for uh, such a thing based on, on Arnold's behavior. turns out, actually, that uh, Dundas wrote to Clinton and said, he's doing a great job down here. We may not like him, and there's a number of our officers who are not happy about having to serve under this traitor, but he's he's doing a, job, a fine job, so, so don't worry about it. So Arnold would be here until Phillips arrives and takes command of the army. So that's more or less a catch-up to, uh, to where we are. He will be the second-in-command at, at the Battle of Petersburg. But interestingly enough, Arnold will have almost no role in the Battle of Petersburg and, and no role in anybody can seem to to uh, to, to determine. Uh, I have a, a number of theories as to why that might be, but uh, at this point, he's he's going to be kind of a, the, the mystery man at the Battle of Petersburg. But that's that's a catch up on Arnold, if you will, Brady. What was the goal of this military expedition? Well, essentially, the, the main the main 
concern of sending troops to Virginia, first Arnold and then the Phillips with reinforcements, was really to disrupt the supply system, really to cut off supplies heading south. Uh, and, and Phillips essentially came down with the same mission that Arnold did. He, he decided to go after Petersburg, and the, the city of Petersburg will tell you that that they were a target really for three reasons uh, the city of petersburg uh, at that point it was simply the village of petersburg in the village of blandford you'll you'll hear oftentimes this battle referred to as the battle of blandford the battle actually occurred in the villages of blandford and petersburg both of which are now part of the city of petersburg and obviously they were much smaller in terms of development than it is today but the city of petersburg will, will tell you that they were a target because it was a it was a central location astride both water and, and, and land routes. It was a transportation hub. It was also a transfer and storage location for tobacco, which was which was a medium of exchange. It was very important. Uh repository for most of the wealth in the in the region. They estimate that fully one third of all Virginia tobacco went through Petersburg and that was that was basically the coin of the realm. Petersburg was far more important uh, as a port than Richmond was. Richmond was the brand new capital and, and really just a frontier village in a lot of ways. And finally, it, as I said, it was that Petersburg was a storage and shipping point, along with others, for military supplies for the army that, that the British were fighting in the southern theaters. And, and Steuben's main job was to to raise supplies, move supplies, raise troops, move troops south, rally the people in, in the Petersburg area. Um, and, and those were pretty much the, the 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 reasons why Petersburg was a target. Though initially, General Phillips was going to uh, attack Prince George Courthouse, but he found that all the supplies that were there had been essentially moved away. So uh, he decided he was going to, to focus on Petersburg, which is not a surprise given the, the things that I cited, plus the fact that the, the Americans had, had determined, had expected that Arnold and or Phillips would have attacked Petersburg sooner sooner than, than they did. So it just it was kind of ultimately going to be the target. Uh, Arnold, earlier when he'd raided Richmond, had, had destroyed some public buildings. There weren't many to destroy, a few private buildings, some tobacco, but uh, his his biggest coup there was destroying West Hampton Foundry, which was on the James River outside of Richmond, and that's where cannon were produced and arms were produced, etc., and that was a major, major blow to the Americans. So Petersburg was just going to be another stop on the, the continue, uh, continued destruction of uh, the infrastructure supplying the, the, the Southern Army, if you will. Uh, that's that's pretty much why it was a target, if you will. Bill, in your article, you write about Phillips. Tell us about him. Phillips, Major General William Phillips, interesting character, uh, and this is a gentleman who was the the uh, the subject of the biography that that Bob Davis had had written. Phillips was a was a British officer uh, by rank lieutenant colonel with a local rank of major general. He was an artillery man. His artillery actually had killed Lafayette's father at the Battle of uh, Minden in 1759. Uh, at this point, he was 50 years old. He was, he was very well thought of in the Army. He was considered to be a, a, a strict disciplinarian, but a, but a good leader. His soldiers liked him. He was a, a friend of Cornwallis and, and Clinton. He had been the second-in-command to General John Burgoyne during the Saratoga campaign, and consequently, he was captured at Saratoga. He um, became part of the Convention Army, that uh, that 
will ultimately end up in, in Charlottesville, or most of them would end up in Charlottesville, if you will. Um, he he was not by policy supposed to be able to command infantry, and it's a long and a rather convoluted story how Phillips ended up commanding infantry uh, as a second in command of Burgoyne, and that carried over when Clinton sent him down to um, down to Virginia. He arrived in Portsmouth on March 26th with about 2,000 reinforcements. Um, he, he supposedly had a vile temper, but but interestingly, they they said he was he was fat and easygoing, but had a vile temper. So I'm not sure if that's a contradiction or not. Um, Arnold pointed out later on of of his his temper and told Mrs. Bowling where they were quartering that she she better not complain because he's a uh, he's not somebody that they wanted that, that they wanted to fool with. He would ultimately die shortly after, actually about 18 days after the Battle of Petersburg, and he would die of probably typhoid fever, but. Nobody is, is certain about that. It may have been malaria. It may have been um, something else. There's there's a great story that I didn't include in the article that supposedly, as Phillips was lying on his deathbed in Petersburg, uh, Lafayette was across the um, the Appomattox River with two cannon firing into the city, into the town, and, and Phillips said something to the effect as, why doesn't that boy leave me to die in peace? Uh, but he is buried in, in Blanford Cemetery in um, the outskirts of, of Petersburg now. Supposedly, Mal, the old, old Mal, the, the a servant of the a slave of the uh, Bowling family, was buried above him to uh, trick the Americans if they were going to try to desecrate his body. His, his grave is unknown at this point. Back in, in April, they, they did a nice... Um, ceremony honoring him, and uh, they had some British uh, officers there speaking, British chaplain. It was a, it was, it was a very interesting uh, presentation. If, if anybody is interested, the book to read is Where a Man Can Go by, by Robert Davis. Um, very interesting, very interesting general. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's your Phillips profile, if you will. Bill, we covered the British command. Let's talk about the American command. Who do we see there? Well, the American command really consisted of about the only Continentals that were in Virginia, and that was Major General um, Baron von Steuben, who uh, would have who left the the North with with a uh, General Green. I'm sorry, Washington sent the two of them down. Green left Steuben in Virginia to uh, organize supplies, troops, etc. When he went, that is, Green went south into the Carolinas. Um, Steuben, another interesting character. Um, he he was not he was 51 at this point, not well thought of in Virginia by the the, the civil authorities, probably because he was so energetic and such a pain in the behind in terms of trying to get them to raise troops, um, raise money, provide supplies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, he was, as I said, the senior continental person at the battle. The only other one was General Peter, Peter Muhlenberg, Brigadier General Peter Muhlenberg, who was a, a Virginia continental general. He was 40 years old. He had uh, participated in pretty much the Philadelphia campaign with Washington, uh, been to uh, Valley Forge, been to Camp Middlebrook later on, um, was sent by Washington to uh, Virginia to organize, help organize the troops, particularly to assist um, Muhlenberg. This is the general who, as a colonel, supposedly, while preaching as the Lutheran uh, clergyman in the valley, uh, 
quote in scriptures as a time for a piece of time for war, open his his jacket and has cotton or his, his cassock had his continental uniform on and went out and, and recruited one of the Virginia regiments. So that, there's there's some to the truth to that story probably, but not quite the way it's 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 actually re- repeated. The only other general in that in the general area was uh, militia brigadier general Thomas Nelson, who uh, was not actually in the battle but had been uh, shadowing the British movements for quite a while before the uh, before the battle. He was he was described as kind of a jolly fat man. He would be the next governor of Virginia after uh, Thomas Jefferson. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Um, again, a, a very much of another interesting character. The, the rest of the senior leadership of the American forces were were all pretty much lieutenant colonels who commanded battalions slash regiments of militia. And, and colonels Merriweather, Dick, Faulkner, Slaughter, and, and Goody um, were, were the really the, the the leaders of the american units that that fought in the battle so so really there were militia colonels leading all militia units and the american army was all militia at this point with the exception of the two leaders uh Steuben and Muhlenberg who were continental officers other than that everybody was militia from the american side in this battle and conversely everybody from the british side were pretty much regulars so it was it was an interesting matchup, though a lot of the uh, militia had previous experience as Continentals, and that would show up in the battle, and it would surprise General Phillips when the militia were as, as steady as they were during the course of the battle, which is, as as we know, in a lot of cases, that's that's a bit unusual. So, so those were those were the uh, those were the main leaders, if you will. So, Bill, could you take us through the Battle of Petersburg? <laughs> I will try to do that. Um, the, the, the British had been raiding along the James from about the 18th of April to the 24th for about a week. And this was, as I said, said, subsequent to, to uh, Philip's arrival in March, at the end of March. Um, they reorganized, they regrouped, they reconnected at City Point, which is Hopewell now. And if you're a Civil War person, that's down where, where the big supply, Union Supply Depot was during the Battle of Civil War Battle of Petersburg, where Grant's headquarters um, was at this point, at uh, that point. Um, they, they organized, reorganized, rested, and on the morning of the 25th of April, 1781, they, they started marching towards Petersburg, and it's about 11 or 12 miles, give or take, just, just a little bit. The British Army at this point was about 2,500 troops. Uh, they consisted of the 78th Regiment, the 80th Regiment, the Queen's Rangers under under Colonel Simcoe, Arnold's American Legion, which wasn't a very big uh, group, a number of Jaegers, and the 1st and 2nd Battalions of Light Infantry, and again, about 2,500 or so. There were also 11 small gunboats uh, on the James on the Appomattox River that that came up the river, paralleling the the British march on, uh, along the river. And these were similar to the uh, the gunboats that Arnold had constructed up at Valcour Island. They they carried usually one field piece with a couple swivel cannons. They brought supplies, they brought ammunition, and they also could carry troops. And they they had some on board to act as a security for the boats, if you will. Um, the Americans 
knew that the British were coming. They had kind of been uh, monitoring and re- reconnoitering all along the route. Uh, interestingly, it was a route that would have led itself to ambush, but no such ambush happened, probably, I suspect, because uh, General Steuben was not interested in spreading out his militia in those kinds of situations uh, that would be a little a little harder to control. But the British approached Petersburg uh, about a mile or so away at, at one o'clock. They stopped. They kind of organized, rested a little bit, and so that set themselves up uh, into their battle lines. Uh, what what they what they did was they put their uh, 78th and, and 80th regiments on the first battle line on the left under Dundas, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Dundas. And on the right, they put the 1st Battalion of Light Infantry and some Jaegers under Lieutenant Colonel Abercrombie. And, and these were, uh, again, you can you can go to look at some of the markers, and they're about, give or take, about a mile from the 1st American line. Um, at, the, at about 2 o'clock, they started to move towards that 1st American line. The 1st American line had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Murrayweather's battalion on the left, closest to the Appomattox River, and on the right, Lieutenant Colonel Dick's battalion uh, that kind of went up toward the hills on, on the right. And they would th- th- they would move in, they're moving in towards the, the American line and, and see that there's a small company of militia on Wells Hill, which is in front of, more or less in front of Abercrombie, and they quickly send some Jaegers up there who drive those those scouts, those um, those militiamen off the hill, and they move ahead against the first line. Now it's interesting. There's no fortifications here. There are no trenches. There are no redoubts, but the ground does benefit uh, the Americans in terms of it's somewhat swampy. There's some uh, ravines. There's a, a small creek. Uh, that the British will have to cross first, and then there's a, a larger one called Lieutenant Run that is between the two American lines. And you'll hear about that if if you read about the Civil War Battle of Petersburg also. Um, so the first line is going to hold for about a half hour, exchanging volleys with the British. At this point, Phillips sees that the American right really doesn't have much of a defense there. And he decides to send Lieutenant Colonel Simcoe around in a flanking movement with the 2nd Battalion of Light Infantry and his Queen's Rangers. And these these troops will come around the hill and kind of be out of the fight for a good portion of the time as they attempt to flank the Americans. Now, the Americans' greatest concern at this point was to protect the bridge over the Appomattox River. That was their that was their escape route. Steuben pretty much realized that he was not going to win a battle against a, a force that was probably twice his size and all regulars with a smaller force of, of militia. Uh, he, he later writes to Green and says something to the effect that I still don't know how to beat a, a force twice my size with the militia only. But he knew he could put up a good fight, and, and all of the militia were interested in, in fighting. They they wanted to be part of some kind of an attempt to stop the British. So the bridge that went over the Appomattox River was critical to Steuben, and that it was his it was it was his release point, his safety valve. So he had guarded that with a with 
with a, a small battalion on the on the south side, which is the Petersburg side of the river, if you will, and more troops on the north side. And we'll we'll, we'll talk about that in in a little bit. But um, this this Simcoe movement is the one thing that. I always wonder why Arnold didn't get this job as opposed to Simcoe. And, and, and I've, I've, again, to go back to Arnold's, Arnold's involvement in all this, three things strike me. Arnold perhaps wasn't involved that much in the battle because he was concerned about being captured. Uh, we've all heard the stories, if you capture him, hang him right away. The story about uh, what will happen if you capture me, they'll cut off your leg that had given so much service to the country, then hang the rest of you. Jefferson had put, a, a, I think, a 5,000 guinea reward on his head. Um, I've never bought that because in none of his actions had Arnold ever shown cowardice at all. So I don't think that that is likely to have been a reason for him. The second possibility is it really wasn't that big of a battle. There really might not have been a great need for Arnold as a general officer and second in command to really have a major role in the battle. But I'm, I'm inclined to lean toward a third reason, and that is since Arnold was such an important factor in the Battle of Saratoga and Phillips was captured there, perhaps... Phillips was not really overly excited about having Arnold as a subordinate, as a second in command, and using him for for actions like that. And perhaps that's why Simcoe was given the uh, the task of of trying to flank the American position. But the American, the first American line would hold for about a half hour, and then fall back on the second American line with Faulkner's battalion near the the river and Slaughter's battalion next to that. Uh, Numbers conflict. Nobody seems to agree exactly on how many uh, soldiers that there were for the Americans. Some say 1,000, some say 1,200, but probably between these two lines and among these four battalions, there were probably about 800, uh, 800 troops on those two lines. The first two battalions fall back, join the second two battalions, and now... Uh, Phillips will attack those four battalions with, again, Dundas and Abercrombie. He'll be very surprised at how steady these troops are. They deliver enough volleys to knock back two British assaults against them. But Phillips, as the old artillery man, has found a position off to the left of the British, to the right of the Americans, kind of up on a height, right by the old Holiday Inn that just was torn down in the last six months or so. And Captain Fage will in, in, in place his four cannon there, which will enable him to inflate that American line. Uh, essentially, he's firing down what's now Madison Street, where the YMCA is. And that that's pretty much the, the key to... Uh, to Stoibin saying, all right, it's time to get out of town. So he starts to pull his, his troops back from the second line, back through Petersburg. Now, now the British have already advanced through Blanford across the open area between the two, uh, between the two lines, across Lieutenant Run. The uh, Americans have, have torn up a causeway over there, torn up a small bridge, does not stop the British who move through. The, the British of the Americans will move back toward the bridge across the Appomattox River. Now, about this time, Simcoe comes back into the picture by coming around uh, kind of from the south 
and sees that he will not be able to get to the to the bridge before the Americans are able to cross it. So he will move farther west in an attempt to cross the river and engage the American artillery. There's two um, pieces of American artillery on the hill across uh, the bridge that are supposedly going to provide some backup really don't, unfortunately. But they do fire enough to, to drive Simcoe away. And Simcoe essentially now is, is out of the, the fight. He really doesn't have much to do uh, in in the whole battle, if you will. Um, so the, this this fight is going to go on from about 2 o'clock to about 4 o'clock to about 5 o'clock. The British will push through uh, the the town of Petersburg. The British had any, uh, probably about a 10 to 1 advantage in bayonets, but they really never got to use them. Uh, that was a concern that, that the American leadership had, but it, it didn't turn out to be a, a particular a particular issue, if, if you will. So the militia will fall back through Petersburg to the bridge. They will fall back in echelon with each echelon uh, supporting the other as they move through. The, the American artillery on the hill will try to support them, but things are, are too jumbled at this point, and they're concerned about hitting their own men. And, uh, the Americans will start to cross the bridge. The British will attempt uh, uh, one attack against the bridge, which is, which is pushed back. Uh, the Americans will tear up the planks. But the British artillery under Captain Fage will will cause some casualties at this point. But the Americans, by five o'clock, they're able to pretty much retreat to the heights across the Appomattox River, tear up the planks on the bridge. And by six o'clock, the British have they're in town in Petersburg. They have pretty much control of the situation south of the river. And the battle is, is pretty much over at that point. There's uh, some minor skirmishing, but nothing of, of any particular significance from here on. Casualties, you know, you've, you've studied the revolution. Nobody agrees on numbers. Um, the, the, the British supposedly lost about 60 uh, I think it might have been a little higher, but uh, sources all disagree. One source, uh, Peckham's book, I think, says the Americans lost 10. Another source says the total of 150 killed, wounded, and captured. Again, no, nobody. I think Boatner says maybe 60 on each side. Nobody agrees. Nobody agrees what the what the, what the numbers are. But but that's that's the Battle of Petersburg essentially in a in a, in a brief sum. I hope a brief summary. Uh, so what else can I try to answer for you? What was the outcome of this battle? How did it change the war? Well, uh, it, it, it probably, it was obviously a British victory, and, and some tobacco was destroyed. Phillips pulled the tobacco out of warehouses and burned it in the streets. He was very uh, conscious about not destroying uh, private buildings. Uh, I, I can think of two, at least two, uh, results of the battle. One very tangible. What happened after the battle is, uh, within a day, the British, the Americans had retreated north from the Petersburg area through Chesterfield, and pretty much dispersed at that point as they headed north toward Richmond. The the British army repaired the bridge with no particular difficulty, crossed it the next day, and marched north to Chesterfield Courthouse, which was another. All the courthouses were the supply areas, supply centers destroyed that supply center, uh, burned barracks, burned a hospital, burned supplies, uh, drove off the few uh, continental recruits that were there. And, and uh, Phillips then marched to 
the James River across from Richmond. And he was in a position again to attack Richmond as a follow-up to what Arnold had done. And this is, this is the tangible piece. By the time he got there, Lafayette had arrived with his Continental troops and were on the heights across the James River. So Phillips was smart enough to know that it did not make sense to try to cross the James River in boats with artillery and regular Continentals on the hill waiting for him. Instead, he burned some of the the buildings in Manchester, which is now part of the city of Richmond. Uh, So the, the, the first thing that the Battle of Petersburg did was delay uh, delay Phillips's continued assault on supply systems, et cetera, and probably saved uh, Richmond. I, I hate to say something saved the revolution. In this case, the battle certainly didn't, but it probably saved uh, the city of Richmond. And there's, there's probably at least one intangible factor that's involved, and that is the militia really did very well here at Petersburg. When you look at the revolution, or when we think about it, we think oftentimes that the militia failed to failed to live up to what they what they were supposed to have done. I think Bunker Hill certainly is a good example of militia doing the job. My old town, hometown of Springfield, New Jersey, the militia did the job there, and certainly the Cowpens. And I think this is another example of where collectively the militia who formed a, a good portion of the troops, uh, in this case all of them, uh, really did a good job. So I, I would say those are those are, are, are really two kind of one intangible and, and one not so tangible uh, results of the battle, if you will. Bill Welsh, thanks again. Uh, you're quite welcome. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you kindly. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.